So uh, last week we started chapter 10 and went through verses 1 through 7. And we were looking at, uh, if you have your notes from last week, you can kind of look back over that. We uh, looked about the sixth seal um, and the, uh, excuse me, the sixth trumpet. And we looked about um, all that was going on. And then we flipped forward to chapter 11, and when the third woe was going to begin, we talked about uh, a couple really big things, right? Uh, who actually was this? Was this the Lord himself? Uh, was it an angel? Uh, the more I have studied over it this week, I, I leaned more to it was an angel uh, rather than the Lord himself. And, um, and we looked at that as it was meant to be an encouragement to them. In all of this death, all of this judgment. And when we come to chapter 10, verses 8, it is, uh, if you have a heading in your Bible, or it's the same as the title, John eats the little book. And I think it's interesting what we have seen in chapters 9, and we've seen all of this judgment. We have here in chapter 10 this encouragement. But yet when we look here about the book being eaten, we're going to see that it is both sweet as honey in your mouth, but yet it is bitter to the stomach. And we're going to look at that in just a moment, but it really is the same theme as we go through it, right? For some, it is a reminder that God is in control, that God is taking care of everything. For those that love him, but for those that don't know him, the, the judgment and the heartache that is going to be going on. And so while this book has this sweet as honey, and we're going to look at other places in the Bible, how the word of God can be, it can be sweet, it can be refreshing, it, it can be the words of life to those who are believing, to those who are not believing, it is bitter, right? It is it is judgment. It is a pill that is hard to swallow. And so you continually see the same thing throughout the book of Revelation, the judgment, the encouragement, right? The, the redemption and the rejection. And so it is just constant throughout, throughout the book. And so uh, I'm just going to read this tonight and then we will uh, jump back in verses 8 through 11. And I actually had said last week, uh, that I had a little uh, shortness of breath issue. So if someone would like to read verses 8 through 11, it would be greatly appreciated. Then a voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is in, was it opened in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. He said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So if you remember, we know that he has been shown certain things that he is not to talk about, right? He's not to write about. And yet here in this passage of scripture, it is probably one of the most strange uh, situations, this little book. And um, so we're just going to talk about that. The book by some Bible commentators 
would be the scroll that we read in Revelation chapter 5. If you remember in Revelation chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll, and to loose its seven seals. And so some Bible commentators believe that this is the book that John is called to eat. I do not agree with that necessarily, because one, we have not yet seen the seven trumpet. Right? Even though it is open, that judgment has not came yet. It is at the end of chapter 11. And so what could it possibly be? No one knows. All right? It could be the word of God symbolizing what we're going to look at just in a minute about what the word of God means. Could it have been the gospel? Could it have been the book of Revelation itself? Could it be the prophecies that are going to come in chapters 12 through 22? which where things really get to be very confusing and, and a lot of symbolism and a lot of stuff that's hard to understand about the dragon and the woman. Could it be that? We don't really know. But what I want us to see is, is what else does the Bible say about this? What else does the Bible say is sweet as honey? What else in the Bible says it's bitter to the stomach? And let the word of God explain itself to us. And so I wanted to show you here again that the angel that stands on the sea and on the ocean, I think that is probably why I believe it is an angel and not the Lord himself, just because it cannot really line up with the Lord returning again if he's already standing on the earth, okay? I don't believe you believe what you believe because of the verses that explain it, but you also have to address the verses that makes something not possible. And so that's why I think it is an angel, a powerful angel, but not the Lord. And But look here in verse 9. I think it's very interesting. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. I want you to see that this is a sign of obedience from John. Because look what it said in verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go. Take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I want to just stop here for just a moment because I was listening to Charles Stanley this week and I've been trying to listen to him on uh, about uh, walking in the spirit and being led by the spirit and all of these things. And he was saying that the greatest problem that we have as believers is when we know what God wants for us to do, we make every excuse. We say, wait, we'll do it later. And he was teaching us that if the Spirit of God prompts you to do something and he wants you to do it now and you don't do it, it is disobedience. There is no other word for it. If you know the Lord wants you to do something and you don't do it, it is sin. And he was really talking about that a lot and how as to walk in the Spirit is to be trusting the Lord every moment of our day, every decision that we make. And I see this, and I think, what if John said, well, I don't want to eat a little book. I mean, that would have been a pretty normal response, right? I don't want to eat the scroll. But yet he went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. 
And tonight I want to ask you that as we go through this book and as we look at all these things that are going to happen tonight, what has God laid on your heart to be obedient to him that you're not doing? What is it in your life that you know the word of God has showed you, the gifts that God has given you, and you said, no, I'm not going. Now, I don't think the Lord's going to cause you to eat a, a, a little <coughs> scroll or a piece of paper, but we've seen a lot of kids in our house eat paper. Uh, I don't think that that was the Lord telling them to eat paper, but it's a sign of obedience. John is being obedient even when he doesn't understand. John is being obedient when it honestly doesn't even make sense. John is being obedient knowing that God has a purpose and plan for his life. And it's interesting because when he says that, this is then when he says it's going to be bitter. And this is when he says it's going to be sweet. He could have said, go take the little book and it's going to be sweet and bitter. But many times we do not understand the plans that God has. We don't know how something's going to go. We don't know what it's going to cost us. We don't know what that obedience is going to take us through. But John was obedient. And in verse 9 it says, And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. We know there that he takes it. He took the little book. Right now he has been warned. This is what's going to happen. And then he still is obedient. And then it goes on and says that that is exactly what happened. And so any questions before we look at what the Bible talks about in bitter stomachs and sweet as honey to the mouth? This doesn't have to do with sweet or bitter, but with angels and books. And I know from a computer this reference isn't in here, but Daniel 12, you have the, uh, you have the angel Michael. Mm-hmm. Yes. It could be. And if you remember, I think it was last week that we looked at Daniel 12, or it might have been two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel 12, verses 4 through 7. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things will be finished. And we know that that, that time and time and half a time uh, can be a reference to a period of time, which some then tie into the tribulation period, the three and a half point. But yes, it could be. It could be. It could be. It absolutely could be. And if you remember when we looked um, last week, if I can pull all these back, which mine aren't in order like, like your are, uh, yours are, we looked there in the very beginning of that at the different references 
um, from Revelation 8.2. It was on the second page, I believe, of your notes. Uh, we looked at Daniel chapter 8 when Daniel came, or when Michael came. We looked in Luke 1 when Gabriel came. We looked in Luke 1 when he came to Joseph, to Mary, excuse me. We looked in Daniel 10 when he spoke. And we looked at how this could possibly be the fourth time that Gabriel had gave a message uh, to man. So yes, an angel like Michael, like Gabriel, in that same power and authority could absolutely be the case. But if you have your Bibles and you want to, or you can read it from the notes ahead of you, in Numbers chapter 5, we see what the Bible talks about bitter. And in Numbers chapter 5, and this is the Bible, not me, all right? So if you get upset, don't, don't look at me, all right? It's talking about when unfaithfulness happens in a marriage. And if you're familiar with how God describes the nation of, of Israel in the Old Testament, if you specifically remember the book of Hosea, he labels them as a what? Unfaithful, right? And he tells... He tells Hosea, you go marry Gomer, and then you go bring her back, and then you bring her back, and you name her kids this. I showed up at church camp this year, and the guy that was supposed to be teaching the Bible study had to leave to go to an emergency doctor visit. And he says, can you teach my Bible study this morning? I said, sure, what's not? He goes, Hosea. I went, wonderful. I would love to talk to the sophomore boys about the book of Hosea. That is wonderful. I said, I just preached through Hosea, so it won't be too bad. But this idea of unfaithfulness, and I think it is important because when we look at Revelation, this sweet honey taste is this encouragement that the word of God can be. But yet this bitterness is a sign of judgment. And so when we look here in Numbers chapter 5, it is the law concerning an unfaithful wife. And starting in verse 23, you can read all about it um, in the verses previous. That's why I wanted you to go there, all right? And it gives this, 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 this path to go through when the jealousy happens and there's no proof and no one caught them, but yet there, there is this situation where it could have happened, all right? But in verse 23, it says, Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. Then he shall scrape them off into bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. You say, well, what does this have to do 
with Revelation chapter 10. We see it is eaten, it goes into the stomach, and then it becomes bitter. It becomes bitter. It becomes a sign of the unfaithfulness. It is a sign of disobedience. It's a sign of sin and an unfaithful bride to the covenant. And when we look at why Revelation is written, I believe it is written to the Jewish people who have been unfaithful to the covenant, who God is dealing with, who has brought them back to a relationship with him. Right? The evangelists, we're going to see the two witnesses uh, in the next chapter and all of this stuff. And he is showing them that those who continue to reject the message, those who continue to not repent, it is going to be just like this situation here that the bitterness, the unfaithfulness is going to have consequences. You see here in verse 28, though, I think it is really significant. It says, but if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and can may conceive children. So she may have life, right? There will be life. She's going to have children. But if she does not have children, if she has been unfaithful and has broke this marriage covenant, there is going to be bitterness. There's going to be effects of this sin. And so I think when you look at where does the Bible talk about bitterness in the stomach, where does the Bible talk about something that could tie together? It's this. And when you look at Israel and you think of Hosea and you think of all the correlation, especially the minor prophets to the unfaithfulness of Israel, you see that correlation. But it's not just to Israel. It's the same for all of us who choose to harden our hearts and to reject the free gift of salvation. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we will have to answer for the wages of our sin. The Bible makes it unapologetically clear that right if you reject the free gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you and I, when we leave this world, we will not enter into his presence into a place of rest. And so I really see here in both of these passages of scripture, really the only the really only overwhelming thing that it could be really ties back to Numbers chapter 8. There are other examples of bitter things in the Bible, but I don't think you see the correlation to unfaithfulness. You see, don't see the correlation to uh, a bride and to a covenant that can be seen in both of these. Um, questions, thoughts? Well, most of it, if you look for a reference, is going to be on the other side. The honey, the sweetness, what the Lord's word in someone's mouth looks like. In Jeremiah chapter 15, and you are welcome to flip there with these as we look at these. That way you don't just see the two verses, but you can see the whole of it. In Jeremiah chapter 15, um, we know that the Lord will not relent. And uh, it says in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. And so in verse 10, it talks about, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest, nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses. 
But in verse 15 and 16, listen to what it says. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I what? Ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And so he is in a time of pity, really, uh, of being persecuted. But he says, your words were found and I ate them. He's talking about the joy that comes from the word of the Lord. He talks about the joy of knowing who God is. You say, well, it was the message that he was preaching to the people that was joyful. If you've read Jeremiah, it is not a, a book of joy in his message, right? It's everybody else is telling you you're going to be fine. Right? Everyone else is calling evil good and good evil. And I'm here to tell you that God says no judgment's coming. It don't matter if we've got the temple. It don't matter what has happened in the past. Judgment is coming. But he says, and your word was to me the joy. I can only imagine if John is receiving the book of Revelation and he's seeing all of the death that's going to occur, all of the heartache that's going to occur, over half of the world's population at this point has been killed. You have to think that where's the joy? Where's going to be the joy in relaying this message to the churches? But yet he knows that the word of God is sweet. The word of God is joy. The word of God is not hopeless. Even in times of correction, even in times of the discipline of God, we still see the love and mercy of God. You can flip over to Jeremiah chapter 1, and once again we see something very similar to this. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 7. But the Lord, well, we'll go back to verse 6. I think that's a good place to start. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. So he gives God an excuse. I can't, I can't, I can't do the task that you've asked me to do. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Verse 9, don't miss it. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put, oh, come on, my words in your mouth. So verse 10, don't miss it. See, I have set this day you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. God is using here what? As a mouthpiece. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to give you what is necessary for you to do the task that I've given you. Jesus said the very same thing, right? Don't worry. 
Don't worry when they drag you in front of courts and, and religion leaders and, and this, you'll know what to say. You'll know what to proclaim. And so I think it is very important, especially for us as New Testament Christians, to know who is truly the teacher of God's word to us. Not a pastor. It is the Holy Spirit. Right? He is the one who reveals these things to us. He is the one that shows us what the word of God truly means. So we're starting to see this theme of God's messenger being given God's word through the mouth to represent receiving it and proclaiming it. Questions before we just continue to look at this very same theme in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Oh, let me look here. I can't remember how old it would have been. Um, let's see here. Yeah, um, so if you look through different references uh, about Josiah's 13th year, that would have been 627 B.C. Uh, he would have prophesied all the way past the fall of Babylon in 586. So if, if, if he was still allowed the liberties that we see in chapter 5, uh, he would have been somewhere in chapter 52 between 85 and 90. Uh, just by tracking it from 627 to 580, 580, what is that, 580 something. So you're looking at a ministry of over five decades. So, you know, mid-20s, early 30s, maybe early 20s. So, but that's the best way to look at it, especially if you have a, a Bible that has an explanation in your of the book. And it begins to talk about when his ministry started uh, and when it ended. That's really about the best I can, can see from that. Other questions? Jeremiah 5. If you want to flip over there with me, it's going to be in your, your notes. But once again... When you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know, and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. So the Lord is saying, the nation is bankrupt. They are wicked, all right? Just run as fast as you can, as much as you can, and try to find someone that is godly. All right, that's the setting of this chapter. But look down in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. 
So we see that the word of God can be an encouragement, but we see that the word of God can bring judgment, right? Fire to wood, it burns it to nothing, right? Just the ashes that are left. And so once again, he is saying my words in your mouth. The power of the word of God is so important. You say, well, Jake, I don't understand. Well, if you read in chapter five of Numbers, the Lord said something supernatural is going to happen in this test of loyalty. We saw there in chapter 15, Lord, remember me, Lord, to, to do all of these things. We see that it can bring judgment. We see that it can encourage Right? It, the word of God is effective, right? It, the Lord promised that it would what? Accomplish its purposes. And so it's so important, I think, for us to look at this and to see the significance of the Lord's word. Whether he puts it, whether he touches the lip, it really is important. Any thoughts about Jeremiah? I want you to flip over to Ezekiel with me because we're just we're trying to set the pattern of what does the Bible say about what we're looking at and how else has God worked in the past. In Ezekiel chapter three. And uh, if you're familiar with this chapter, you get into chapter six, six, verse 16, and it's Ezekiel is the watchman and and uh, the Lord came to him and all of these things. But in verse one through three of Ezekiel it says moreover he said to me son of man eat what you find well what is he supposed to eat eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel so I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll and he said to me son of man feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you so I ate, and it was in my mouth like, well, where did we hear that? Revelation chapter 10, we see this reference. And so here it is again, verses 1 through 3. God's message, and I think this is really important. If you have the MacArthur Study Bible, it is a wonderful comment on this. God's messenger must first internalize God's truth for himself. Then preach it. Adrian Rogers always used to say, I don't care if you use my sermons, but make sure that the bullet affects you before you shoot it through your gut. Right? Don't just study the word of God to teach it. You study the word of God to impact yourself. And out of that overflow of what God does, what God reveals to us, then we teach. Verse three there. Even though this message on Israel at this time was judgment and it should have been bitter because it was God's word, because it was a vindication of all that God was doing, we see that it was still sweet. And I think that's where it gets kind of difficult. We're going to look at the rest of this chapter, but if you want to sneak down to verse 12 of the same chapter. Then the spirit lifted me up and behold, behind me, a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. 
I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels beside them, and the great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness. Bitterness. Hmm. In the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river of Chabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. So Jeremiah, talking about the delightment of God's work, we see the bitterness here in this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at it in verse 9 in a minute, but we're seeing the Word of God has a purpose. Right? It can be an encouragement. It can be sweeter than honey, but it can also be judgment. It can also be uh, something that can discourage if we're not careful. But yet, once again, Ezekiel has said, Son of man, eat what you find, and then speak and go. Questions, thoughts? You brought up the whole Jose thing, um, and it's kind of a picture of God in, in Israel and in some sense us mm -hmm. where Jose's marrying mm -hmm. Harvard and Absolutely. Faithful to him. Um, also in Proverbs 5 there's the woman to the son about, about the strange woman. Uh, and it also has the bitter sweet, you know, the sweetness that goes to the woman with bitterness. Absolutely. I was trying to think exactly what it said there in Proverbs 5. Was, my brain is slow tonight. Yeah, it talks about the peril of adultery, the dangerous promises, the folly of uh, indulgence. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, in reality, we are that, you know, we are the picture of that woman in our unfaithfulness to God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, God is long suffering with us. Amen. Amen. Well, in that same chapter in Ezekiel 3, if someone would read verses 4 through 11, I would greatly appreciate it. So, Ezekiel, the same passage we were on, but in between what I read you, from what he said to how the response, verses 4 through 11, I would appreciate it. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, before, though they are rebellious house. And he said to me, Son of man, listen and carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. All right, so he talks about why he's been given the word, what his mission is with the word, what the people are going to be like, when they are hearing the word. And so now when you read this, you understand why in verse 14, he went in bitterness because they wouldn't listen. They had rejected the message 
of God calling them to repent. And if you remember in Revelation chapter 10, it is sweet for those who are going to listen and embrace, but it's bitter because why? We just looked in chapter 9, verse 20 in Revelation. And what did it say? In Revelation 9, verse 20, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, what? Did not. Oh, come on. Repent. And so the rejection of the word of God becomes bitter. It becomes judgment. It is not the words of life for those. And so I believe we're seeing this right in between all of this judgment, all of this hope, and we're seeing the same thing that there's going to be two groups of people. In Psalms 19 and Psalms 119, those are the only two we'll look at in this. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. If you want to flip to Psalm 19 with us, Psalm 19. What is he talking about? He's talking, if you look in verses, uh, if your Bible has a, a title to it, a chapter like mine does, the perfect revelation of the Lord. And if you go all the way down to verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous together. He says the word of God, this is what it is. And now what's it like? Verse 10. Moreover to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter than any honey and the honeycomb. And what did we see there in Revelation? What was it? Sweet. Right? Not bitter. But look what it says in verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It goes on in verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. And don't miss verse 14. Here it is one more time. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The word of God, when we desire it, when we embrace it, when we accept it, it keeps us from sin through conviction. It keeps us from sin through the spirit of God working. And then in verse 14, let the words of my mouth see what goes in, what's in the heart. The Bible says the mouth is what? 
the overflow of what's in there. One of the things that worries me the most about this church, someone says, you've got to quit saying what you think our faults are. Find somebody else. It is how little the word of God is desired. Most of you are here on Wednesday night, all right? Most of you are reading your Bible. Most of you are here on Sunday night. I, I'm fully aware I'm preaching to the crowd, but it's going to everybody else, all right? If there is not a desire in your heart for the word of God, there is a problem as a Christian. You say, well, I don't understand it. Listen, uh, uh, where was I this week? Isn't that terrible? You hang out with old people, it rubs off on you. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. I was at Rogers, and he was talking about a group that he was in. It rubbed off on him from him to me. No, just about it called a grow group. It was five or six people studying the Word of God together. And that number is a great number to be able to ask questions and to talk and to bounce things off people. I said, well, I want to come back. I want to look at the material. I want to, I want to get that because I think we should be doing that here. I think we should. Why? Because the Word of God should be something that we're wanting to study together. We're wanting to pray over together. We're wanting to bounce it off ideas and thoughts. And, and what does it mean? And we can't do that on Sunday morning. We can't open it up for questions and discussion. All right? Even on Wednesday night, it's, it's already talked the whole time anyway, so it's difficult then. But the smaller the group becomes, we used to have men's Bible study at Tuesday morning at 5.30, I think it was, I taught Bible study. Was it 5.30, Keith? Something or way early in the morning before work, right? And then we had, a, for a small time, we had a men's Bible study on Sunday afternoon. You say, Jake, why don't we have one? You want to know the honest truth? I got tired. No one else wanted to teach them. The groups that I taught, they had to take turns. I'll never forget the first time I told Keith, next week's your week. <laughs> but he did it. He did it. Yeah, he did it. And why? It stretched us. The Sunday night group, I taught the first two lessons and never went back. Just left it to him. Why? Because the word of God should be desired. We should know that it can change us. That the word of God can deal with us. The word of God can strengthen us. God, through the power of his word, can change things. Look what it says in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, verse 103, and if you're uh, not familiar with uh, Psalm 119, uh, it is a long, 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 long psalm, all right? Um, but it is a beautiful, wonderful psalm, uh, the longest of the psalms and chapter in the Bible, if, if you've ever uh, taken a class about studying it and knowing it and all those things. But look what it says in verses 1. Verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the word of the Lord. They know the word of God. They're walking in the word of God. But flip down by one, verse 103. Verse 103, let's read the verse in front of it and after it, okay? I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. Verse 3, how sweet are your words to my taste. Wait a minute, here it is again, this same idea. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. 
Therefore, I hate every false way. This is going to be really, really popular. Not only should a Christian love the Word of God, they should hate things that are contrary to the Word of God. Amen. We don't just love truth. We hate the lies of the devil. Now, be very careful, though, that it doesn't lead you to hate people, all right? <laughs> Once again, if you drove by my house recently, some of you are not going to be very happy. But I have two signs in my yard, and some of you are not going to like this, I don't care. And it says, impeach someone. I won't tell you who it says, you can drive by and get mad, but I've already been chewed out by it, and I'm just going to keep it. And you say, I can't believe you'd say that. It's because I hate the lies that are being said, the things that are being taught, contrary to the Word of God. Amen. You say, well, Jake, that's not very Christian. That's not what it says right there. God's people should stand for truth and point out lies. That's all there is to it. We cannot be silenced. We have to be willing. Is it probably a little bit over the line? You're right. But so many people won't even pick a side. Someone has to. And if it's not a man of God, who is it going to be? When it comes to God's word, it's not only those outside of ourselves that we need to judge that way, but also inwardly. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. We're contrary to the word of God. We're wrong every single time. Absolutely. 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 So I wasn't going to say that, but we waded into it. So the last and final thing. Huh? I'll say it. Yeah. The last and final thing. He says in this chat, oh, I'm going to get so much for that. So, verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, there is some disagreement on what this means, but what he says is, you've got to be willing to warn the people. You have to be willing to warn them of the consequences of sin, of the judgment to come. Revelation chapter 13, we see this idea of tribes and tongues and nations. But in regards to, in chapter 13, you can flip over there with me, the beast. In verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we're seeing this mission that he is on. But yet we also see the mission that John is on. John says, you, he's told, you've got to keep prophesying. You've got to keep declaring the good news, the consequences of sin. Revelation chapter 17, if you want to flip over there, this idea of multitudes, nations, and kings is mentioned once again in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, the meaning of the woman and the beast. It says, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So he's talking about a worldwide situation here, a multitude of people. And so John has said, 
that prophecy, the proclamation of God's word, even the judgments that are making him bitter needs to be proclaimed. And that is something that you should never forget as a child of God. You must first preach about what sin is in order to tell them about a need for a savior. And what we have stopped doing as a church is proclaiming what sin is and why Jesus had to die, what he sets us free from, what he washes us as snow from, what he died for, for the punishment of my sin and yours. And so he's being told here, you've got to what? Proclaim it all. You can't just have some or another. And Isaiah, ooh, I left out an A in Isaiah. That's not good. 66. Isaiah, this last chapter of Isaiah, and I'll be done. I've got 10 minutes. I'm, I'm going as fast as I can go. He is giving the nation of Israel hope that God is, has a plan for them, that God has a purpose for them. I believe it is a direct relationship to this millennial reign in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. But in verses 22 through 24, he's talking about the signs and all that's going to happen. Isaiah is given a picture of the future. In verse 22, it says, for as the new heavens and the new earth. If you've read the book of Revelation and uh, uh, you can flip to uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, We see in verse 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. John is being shown a foretaste of what is going to happen in the future. Isaiah, even though he is living in the Old Testament, right, when everything revolves around Jerusalem, revolves around the nation of Israel, he says the ultimate promise is for as the new heavens and the new earth. Look what it goes on to say, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. They shall be abhorrence to all flesh. Now, this gets really tricky, and we're not going to dive into it tonight. We're just going to just touch it briefly, okay? If this is a reference to the millennial kingdom that then translates into a new heaven and a new earth, does verse 24 mean that you'll be able to know that there are people in the lake of fire. Or it says where the worm never dies. Or is it just meaning that we will understand that sinners have been punished? Jesus references this when he is talking about the valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem and the fires that always burn. And so what I think it is, is I don't know. I'm just telling you, this is what it says. He talks about a new heaven and a new earth and what that's going to be like. But then right after that, he says a reference to eternal 
damnation. And so if you flip back to Revelation chapter 21, this will be the last thing that we look at. And then you can ask all the questions and all the stuff that goes on. Right before we see the new heavens and the new earth, in chapter 20, we have the... There's a big event that happens. There we go. Thank you very, very much. And if you want to look in verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you want to flip back to verse 6 of that same chapter in Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. But look at verse 6. If you even flip back even farther than that, excuse me. That's not verse 6. My eyes aren't working. Yeah. You see throughout this what? This punishment, this eternal place and you remember what Jesus said in the gospels right where the worm never dies the fire is never quenched right a, a place of, of darkness and, and all of those things we we see this correlation and so even though Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet God gave him a taste of what was going to happen and I believe that John is in the same category he's given a vision of what is going to happen in the future, just like happened with Jeremiah, just like happened with Ezekiel, just what happened with Isaiah, over and over again, God references back, God shows us, God ties it together for this purpose, to believe the word of God, to know that the word of God is hope for those of us who believe, and that it is judgment for those who don't. You're all familiar with John chapter 1. John chapter 1 starts out abundantly clear. I know you're all looking forward to reading one more time. Somebody would read John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Some of you can probably even quote it from memory. But... And then, yeah, perfect. So we see this, um, the word of God we know is this book. Um, Paul writes, it's inspired, it's errant, it's infallible, right? It's, it is perfect in every way. It's God-breathed, and we believe that, right? Um, but it's the word of God because it points us to who? To Jesus Christ, that he is the word, and that everything was made by him, and for him, and through him. And we know the gospel to those of us that are being saved, the Bible says it is what? What does it say that the gospel is to those that are not being saved? The gospel to those that is being saved compared to what is the gospel to those that are not being saved? Yes, it's a stumbling block, right? 
right? Christ is a stumbling block to those who were the Jewish faith that believed that he was the answer, that he was everything. But yet we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I believe um, that John is just experiencing uh, what the prophets of old experienced, of what we, with the word of God, can experience, not in the prophecy of the future, but yet in knowing what the word of God can do. And so, thoughts, questions? Your, your, your preposition that you were putting out in Isaiah, two different, two different things, whether we'll know who are, who are being punished or not, because there's no tears in heaven, mm -hmm. so we may not know. Mm -hmm. Or we may have the mind of God, the just mind of God, that we are being justly punished. Yeah. And see it in that light. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's only one of two options. Either you don't remember or that God gives you the ability to understand why sin has to be punished. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's what he even says. It's a reminder. You know, I don't believe you can walk up and see it, right? Because I think even in Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament, right, there was a, uh, you cannot come here. He cannot, you know, there's a, yes, couldn't think of the word. Thank you. So, but it is a reminder. So I just threw that in there as something to think about. I don't, I haven't done any research, any study, or have anything. I just, I thought I'd just throw that in there. So. <laughs> it can be pretty contentious. Other thoughts, questions? Next week, we really are getting into some of the most difficult situations to study. I want to encourage you to study them ahead. Uh, we'll spend time on the two witnesses. We'll spend time on... Um, who they are, who we could they could be, uh, why some people believe this is the church and not really the two witnesses. Uh, we'll spend some time looking at um, what they do, uh, and it might be more than one week. We'll jump into the seventh trumpet, and then, like I said, the woman, the dragon. We're getting all the stuff we've been discussing so far has been not near as challenging as the stuff we're jumping into. So. Um, anyway, so please be reading and praying a lot. <laughs>